open God's Word this morning to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, and as you turn there, it's worth noting the context. We will begin reading at verse 25, and in the previous 24 verses we have the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus sent that multitude away. And then there is the miracle of the calming of the storm with Jesus walking on the sea to get to the ship. And now the people have discovered that he has left and they have made their way back to Capernaum seeking Jesus. That's the very end of verse 24. And came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And now let's pick up the reading at verse 25. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee. What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven, and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus saith unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you, that ye also have seen me, and believeth not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Then the Jews murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me 
draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And now let's skip to verse 16. Actually, verse 59. Not that the verses in between are unimportant, but they are not as relevant for this morning's sermon. So now to verse 59. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What? And if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before, it is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, therefore, and he said, therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe that and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Thus far we read God's word. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 11. This is found in the back of our songbooks on page 8, Lord's Day 11. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Because He saveth us and deliver us from our sins, and likewise because we ought not to seek, neither can find salvation in any other. Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and welfare of saints, of themselves, or anywhere else? They do not. For though they boast of him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus, the only Deliverer and Savior. For one of these two things must be true. Either that Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that they who by a true faith receive this Savior must find all things in Him necessary to their salvation. To whom else shall we go? That is our confession this morning. As those who believe in Jesus Christ, as those who are members of a Reformed church, we confess, along with Simon Peter, there is no one else to whom we can go. 
There is no other name under heaven whereby we may be saved apart from Jesus Christ. That is our confession. But though that is our confession, we need to be reminded of this truth. Because the reality is that there is much opposition to that teaching. Whether that opposition comes from outright atheism, whether it comes from some false form of Christianity, there are many who would say, you need something more. And when there's a barrage of attacks upon this foundational and fundamental truth, we can begin to have doubts. We can begin to question, well, did this Jesus come into this world for some other purpose? Is there something more that needs to be added to His saving work? It's in light of that opposition that we need to be reminded there is no one else to whom we can go. But now it's not just the opposition from without. It's also on account of the sinfulness within that we need this reminder because every one of us still has that old man of sin. And that old man of sin hates this confession that Simon Peter makes. He detests this truth so that within us there's a part of us that wants to look somewhere, anywhere else for salvation other than Jesus Christ. And thus it's good for us to have a reminder that there is no one else to whom we can go. There is no other name under heaven whereby we may be saved apart from Jesus Christ. And it's in light of the necessity of that reminder that we see the wisdom of our forefathers in calling for Heidelberg Catechism preaching. For without this practice... A minister might be tempted to suppose, well, everyone in the congregation already knows that Jesus Christ is a complete and therefore the only Savior. After all, the youngest catechism students here, the youngest children know that Jesus Christ is our Savior. And thus a minister might be tempted to suppose, well, I don't need to cover such a basic fundamental truth. I may simply assume this, that everybody knows that. But that would be a mistaken notion because the reality is we need this reminder. And even as those who've heard this truth expounded time and time again, much of Christian growth comes from being reminded of the the basics, of the fundamentals. And so we are glad for the practice that has been handed down to us as a part of our Reformed heritage, this practice of Heidelberg Catechism preaching, as it explains to us the the basics of the Christian faith, including giving an explanation of the Apostles' Creed, because that's where we are at in the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is walking line by line, phrase by phrase, and at times word by word, through the Apostles' Creed as it is the summary of of the Christian faith as it summarizes the content of what we believe as Christians. And within that summary, we now begin the section that concerns the Son of God. The top of the page in our Psalters, we 
have that as the heading of God the Son, reminding us that the previous two Lord's Days taught us about God the Father and our creation. And now we begin a longer subsection on God the Son and our redemption. And that section begins by treating the names of our Savior. He is Jesus, He is Christ, He is the only begotten Son, and He is our Lord. And we want to look at each of those in turn, and this morning we spend all of our time focusing on that one name, Jesus, and what it teaches us, namely that He is our Savior. So this morning we will consider Lord's Day 11 using as our theme, Jesus our Savior. First, we will see He is the complete Savior from sin. Second, the only Savior to whom we can go. And then third, the sovereign Savior received by faith. Jesus, our Savior, the complete Savior from sin, the only Savior to whom we can go, and the sovereign Savior received by faith. Thou shalt call His name Jesus. Those were the words of the angel Gabriel when he came to Joseph to explain why his espoused wife was with child. You will remember that Joseph had discovered that his wife was expecting and he thought to put her away. But before he could do that, our God sent an angel, a heavenly messenger, to Joseph. And in Matthew 1, he communicates, he explains what has taken place that Mary has conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost and that the child within her womb was the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior. And Joseph, thou shalt therefore call his name Jesus. That's the name you are to give to this child. And that means that this is the name that God Himself gives to Our Savior. This is not a name that Joseph picked out. This was not the name that Mary picked out. This was not even the name that the angel came up with. But it's God Himself giving the name to this child. And He has the right to do that. Because He is the true, the natural, the eternal Father of this Son. And He gives Him a name that is entirely appropriate. The fact that God gives this name to Jesus means that this is who this child really is. Thou shalt call His name Jesus because He is in fact Jesus. This is His identity. This is the heart and substance of who this person is. And the name then is given to teach us about His identity. To teach us about His work so that the name is a revelation of this child. That's true of all of the names of our Savior, whether it's Jesus, whether it's Christ, whether it's only begotten Son, whether it's Lord, and that's why the Catechism takes the time that it does to work through these names and to explain the meaning, the significance, because all of these names are revelations concerning our Savior. But then that raises the question, well, what does this particular name teach us? What does Jesus mean? What's the significance of that? That's the question that's posed to us in question 29 of the Heidelberg Catechism. 
Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, a Savior? Then it goes on to explain, because He saveth us and deliver us from all of our sins. This name is so important because it reveals to our Savior both His identity as well as His work. On the one hand, it reveals His identity, namely, He is our Savior. And that comes out from the basic meaning of the name. And surely even the younger children here know that Jesus means Jehovah salvation. You take the J-E, the J, there's an abbreviated, abbreviated form of Jehovah, and then you take the S-U-S, and you have the Greek word for salvation. So that it's Jehovah salvation, or Jehovah saves, and that teaches us about the identity of our Savior. He is Himself Jehovah. He is the Son of God, but yet He is the Son of God in a form, if we may put it that way, that's appropriate for Him to accomplish our salvation. Namely, He's the Son of God in human flesh. He is the Son of God clothed in our humanity and therefore able to save us, able to be our sin bearer, to take upon Himself as a a representative the sins of His people. So the name Jesus teaches us about His identity, but it also teaches us about His work, namely that His work is to save. That's what the angel said, Thou shalt call His name Jesus. Why? Because His work is going to be, He shall save His people from their sins. And that's what the catechism focuses on when it asks that question. What is, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? The answer is, because He saveth us and delivereth us. So that the, the focus is on His work. This is His mission in life. This is why He came. This is His purpose to save, to accomplish our salvation. And to save, in particular, His people. That too is a part of the word of the angel. Not just He'll save anyone and everyone, but He shall save His people. So Jesus Christ is our Savior. But now that raises the question, what exactly does He save us from? And again, the answer is quite clear. He saves us from our sins. Basis of Scripture, Catechism teaches that because He saveth us and delivereth us from our sin. And in doing that, He is saving us from the real source of our misery. He came to accomplish our greatest need. Now you believe that, right? That deliverance from sin is in fact our greatest need? It's a fair question. Because there are many who are tempted to elevate other matters, other needs, as that which is more important than Deliverance from our sin. And we see that even when we look at the history 
that we read in John chapter 6. And take the chapter as a whole. When we scan that chapter, we find different groups coming to Jesus as a Savior, but wanting deliverance from something other than their sin. For some, they sought Jesus as a Savior from sickness and disease unto physical health. And that comes out at the very beginning of the chapter. We did not read that part, but in chapter 6, verse 2, we read this, And a great multitude followed Him because they saw His miracles which He did on them that were diseased. There were some who were coming to Jesus simply because they wanted to be healed physically who were not interested in being healed spiritually as well. And if we are honest with ourselves, sometimes we can fall into that same sort of thinking. That what I really need more than anything else is to be delivered from this physical affliction. This chronic ailment that has plagued my life for so many years. This disease that I have and that we start to think of salvation in terms of physical deliverance. Another temptation is to look to Jesus for deliverance For example, from Roman oppression and unto political autonomy. That was why some sought Jesus. And that too comes out from the context in verse 15. After Jesus performs this great miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, we read in John 6 verse 15, And when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take Him by force to make Him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. There were some who wanted to make Jesus a, a political figure. They wanted Him to deliver them from the Roman army and the Roman taxes and the, the presence of the Roman soldiers. They wanted political autonomy. They wanted to be their own independent nation. And they supposed Jesus was the man to do it. And that's still true of some today. So that for many, the thinking is that what we need is the right man in a position of government. We need a a good president, a good government, and that's what salvation is all about, of having everything established from a political point of view. And we can sometimes fall into that thinking ourselves as well. But if it's not that, perhaps... For others, it's that we want a Savior who will deliver us from the storms of life and give us instead an easy life. That too is the context because though we did not read it, a part of the context is Jesus calming that storm that arose on the Sea of Galilee. And the reality is that there are many storms, there are many trials, afflictions that come upon us and we can start to think, well, if only my Savior would get rid of these trials. If only He would calm the the storm that's going on in my life. That's what I really need right now. We can begin to think, that's what, what I really need for my Savior. An easier life instead of all these hardships. Or for others, it's the desire to be delivered from hunger and poverty and be given instead 
plenty and wealth. And that is a part of the chapter that we read this morning in verse 29 when this multitude comes to Jesus the next day. We read this in verse 26. Jesus saying, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. When they come to him, Jesus exposes that their desire is not for the true bread of life, but simply for physical bread. All they want is their stomachs filled, and that's what they are looking to Him for. That's the type of Savior that they have in mind. And this is the type of Savior that's presented in much of the world, especially in third world countries. They teach that Some teach that Jesus will come to, to give you wealth. He'll provide all your physical needs. He'll elevate your standard of living. And for us too, that can be a temptation. To start to look to Him simply as the One who gives me my daily bread. Simply as the One who's going to give me a life with vacations and all other sorts of nice things. And now to be clear, some of these things that we have mentioned are genuine needs. Some of these things are are real problems that we experience, but the, the question before us is, what is our greatest need? What is the root of all of our problems? From what do we truly need deliverance? And the answer of Scripture is that we need deliverance from our sin. That's the heart of our problem, and that's why the catechism rightly began with question or Lord's Days 2 through 4, teaching us the, the knowledge of our misery, and that our misery is ultimately on account of our sin, because it's on account of my sin that I deserve to be punished. I deserve both temporal and eternal punishment. My sin is like a, a wedge between me and my God. And what is more, sin is really the root cause of every other problem. So that so much of the difficulty that we encounter in this life traces its source back to sin. And I should not have said so much of it. All of it traces its source back to sin, either directly or indirectly. Whether the direct consequences of sin or simply the effects of the fall from a a general point of view. What we need is deliverance from sin. So do you see how much our God loves us? And that He gave us the exact Savior we need? It would not have been love on God's part knowing the root of our problem to send some other form of a Savior to address the consequences of sin, to to put a band-aid on the effects of sin without taking care of the root cause of all the problem. And that's why we see it was God's love in that He gave us the Savior that He did. That He gave us one to deliver us from our sins. Because 
if there was something else that was the root of all of our problems, if our greatest need was something else, well, he could have sent the appropriate Savior. If our greatest need was deliverance from sickness, God would have sent a physician and called him doctor. If our greatest need was deliverance from hunger and poverty, well then God could have sent a farmer or an economist and named him banker. If what we needed what is if what we really needed more than anything else was political stability and deliverance from a political point of view, well then God could have sent a politician and named him president. But what we really need is none of those things. That's not the heart of the issue for us. What we need is a, a Savior from our sin. And that's why God sent His Son and called Him Jesus. That's His name. Because that's what we need, one to save us from our sin. So do you still want Him? Do I? That too is a fair question. Because in John 6, when Jesus makes abundantly clear that He has not come to establish an earthly kingdom, He has not come simply to give everyone food for their stomachs, many stopped following Him. Many wanted nothing to do with Him anymore. What about us? Would we be perfectly okay if He left us in our sin and misery as long as He gave us health and wealth? Would we be glad if the guilt of sin, that's still there, but everything's wonderful from a political point of view in this world that we live in? Or what if it was that the pollution of sin remained, but we were given an easy life without any sort of trials, without any sort of afflictions. And so far as that's what's in our hearts this morning, and no doubt it's in everyone's heart to one degree or another, then we need to be reminded of this basic truth. Jesus Christ came to save us from our sin. And we need to be reminded of what Jesus Himself taught us. When He said, What is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, it was in love. That God sent us the Savior we truly need. And that's true not only because He's the Savior from sin. But more than that, He is a complete Savior from sin. Notice the first point is the complete Savior from sin. We've done justice to the fact that He's our Savior. We've explained He's a Savior from sin. But now let's go back to that first word. He's a, a complete Savior. And that's what the catechism emphasizes in the second half of answer 30. 
Answer 30, the second half reads, For one of these two things must be true, either that Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that they who by a true faith receive this Savior must find all things in Him necessary to their salvation. It's obvious that it's the second that is true. He is indeed a complete Savior. And that's true in many different ways. We could give example after example of ways in which Jesus Christ is a complete Savior. This is true, for example, because He delivers us not only from the guilt of sin, but also from the pollution of sin. And that's necessary because when Adam fell into sin, he incurred not only a, a guilt upon himself, but his nature became corrupt. His nature became defiled. And that nature has been passed down to us. So we need a Savior who delivers us from both aspects of sin. And praise be to God, He is such a Savior. For in Jesus Christ, we have our justification, our deliverance from the guilt of sin. But He's also the Savior who sanctifies us and who will one day glorifies us. He delivers us from the, the power, the pollution of sin. That makes Him a complete Savior. He's a complete Savior also because He saves us not only from sin, but also unto eternal life. That is, there is salvation not just from a negative point of view, deliverance from sin, but there's salvation in the positive of being given life with God and all the blessings of salvation. And again, all that's found in Jesus Christ. For it's on the basis of His perfect satisfaction, His enduring the punishment that we deserve, that we have the deliverance from sin, but there's also His perfect obedience, His fulfillment of the whole of the law of God that's the basis for our Right to life with God. He is a complete Savior. He's a complete Savior still more because He not only performs that work of salvation for us and on our behalf, He also works that salvation in us. That is, there's not only His life and all that He did, His obedience and His suffering, but more than that, He sends His Spirit to come and to live within us. He takes that salvation and He delivers it into our hearts and into our souls. He, he regenerates us. He sanctifies us. He, he performs those work of, works of grace within us. He's a complete Savior. He's a complete Savior because He saves us from the very beginning all the way to the very end. So that salvation begins with His work. It's a part of what we read in John chapter 6. For example, in verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me. Draw him. That work of grace whereby we are brought to faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's his work from the beginning. But it's also his work until the end. Even as we read in verse 39. This is the Father's will which has sent me. That of all which he hath given me. I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. From beginning to end, salvation is His work of grace. He's a complete Savior. As one of my seminary professors once said, quote, every drop of the ocean of salvation comes from Jesus, end quote. It's a good way of putting it. 
Because the blessings of salvation really are like an ocean in their, their vastness, in their depth. But what's so important is that not one of those blessings come from any other source other than Jesus Christ. They all come from Him. And that's why He's called Jesus. Because He is our Savior. Now because He is a complete Savior, He is therefore the only Savior to whom we can go. If it's His work from beginning to end, if He's the one who is doing all these things, then there's no one else to whom we can go. He is the only Savior for us. And that's what the Catechism is teaching us in question and answer 29. Question and answer 29. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, a Savior? Because He saveth us and delivereth, delivereth us from our sins. And likewise, and this is the point, because we ought not to seek Neither can find salvation in any other. There's nowhere else we can go. He is the only Savior. And therefore it's folly. To try to look anywhere else. And that's a temptation. For us. To look somewhere else. It's true. The most basic level for all those who look to some other Savior altogether. Whether it's in a false religion and someone's looking to Buddha or to Mohammed. Whether it's looking to a Savior in a political figure or in scientific advancement. So that there's deliverance from disease or whatever that may be. There are some who look to an altogether different Savior. For others... There's a temptation to look to someone who's a sort of co-savior alongside of Jesus Christ. So that, yes, Christ saves me, but he gets help. There's, there's Mary or there's some other saint. That was what the Roman Catholic Church taught and still teaches. And that's why our Reformed confessions make a point of addressing that error of looking to some other saint. But now of all the places we are tempted to look. The main one is not to some other savior altogether. The main one is not to some saint or to Mary. But the temptation is to look. At ourselves. And to start to think. I need to do something. In addition to Christ's work alongside of Christ's work. You see, our old man of sin wants that. Our old man of sin wants to take part of the credit for our salvation. And whether it's looking to another Savior, a co-Savior to ourselves, what all of these have in common is that it's always Jesus and fill in the blank, or Jesus plus this. And we must not suppose that we, as Reformed Christians, are immune to this. This is in our hearts as well. 
Surely we would never admit it. We would never articulate it that by doing this, I am looking to be a sort of co-savior alongside Jesus Christ. But the reality is that in subtle ways, this can be true of us as well. So that we start to think that it's on account of my orthodoxy that I'm going to be saved. Or it's on account of my faithful church attendance. Or it's on account of the fact that I, I serve so much in the church that surely that, that's a part of the reason why I'm right with God. And what we're doing is we're, we're taking our good works, even if only subconsciously, and we're adding them to the equation of the, the saving work of Jesus Christ so that it's Jesus plus my... And then you fill in the blank. Or if it's not our good works, then we start to look to other activities that the Spirit works in us. Maybe we, we look to our faith. Or maybe we look to our repentance and start to suppose that, well, because I believe or because I'm sorry on account of my sins, that that then is why God forgives me. That's the, the part of the basis, part of the reason for salvation. We start to convince ourselves, well, I've been a pretty good person of late. Yes, there's been sins in the past, but I've behaved myself. And surely, therefore, that's why God is now smiling upon me. You see, there are these different ways that we too can be guilty of this sort of thinking. And that, again, underscores the point we made at the beginning of the sermon in the introduction. We need to be reminded of this basic, fundamental truth that Jesus is our only Savior. And that's what the Catechism is at pains to teach us, especially in question and answer 30. Question 30 asks, Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and welfare of saints, of themselves, or anywhere else? So the Catechism is asking, how do we evaluate those who make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but are clearly looking elsewhere for a part of their salvation? Do they actually believe in Jesus Christ? And the answer is that they do not. For though they boast of Him in words, yet in deeds, they deny Jesus the only Deliverer and Savior. Yeah, they may talk a lot about Jesus Christ. They, they boast of Him in words. They speak highly of Him. But by looking to these other things, even if they say it's, it's only a small part, it's just a, just a small percentage, that's all, and it's, the rest is Christ, well, it's still denying Him. And beloved, we must never be guilty of that sort of thinking. It is in us. It's in our hearts because of that old man of sin. And we need to confess that as sinful thinking. Because the reality is that that sort of thinking is so offensive to our Savior. We're not doing Him favors. It's not a help to Him to say, well, I understand that salvation is a pretty big deal. It's Big work and, you know, to try to help my Savior out a little bit. I'll, I'll take a little bit of the, the punishment. 
so that when there's these afflictions that come upon me, surely that's me bearing a part of the wrath and I'm making a little bit of the atonement. Or with my good works, Christ fills up the bulk of the righteousness I need, but I'll, I'll add the last point, 1%. That's not helping him. That's offensive to him because when we fall into that sort of thinking, what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up as a co-savior alongside of Jesus Christ. He does his part, I do my part. But that's an attack upon his saving work. And therefore, when we fall into that sort of thinking, really what we're doing is saying to God, You gave him the wrong name. You should have named him some name that means Jesus partly saves. Or Jesus mostly saves. There should be something between the J-E and the S-U-S that communicates, well, he does most of it, but there's a part that goes to me. So that when we fall into that thinking, when we start to think it's something I do, That's a part of my salvation. What we're doing is signing a a petition saying his name should be changed. And I trust we all see the pride. And therefore the folly. And that sort of thinking. The pride and the folly of looking anywhere else. Child of God, do not allow anyone or anything to stand in your heart next to Jesus Christ as a sort of co-savior alongside of Him. But look to Jesus Christ alone. He is the only Savior Let us therefore confess along with Peter. There is no one else to whom we can go. That was Simon Peter's good confession. When Jesus Christ saw the others leaving. He asked his disciples in verse 67. Then said Jesus unto the twelve. Will ye also go away? And now understand Jesus is not asking this question On account of some sort of self-pity. He's feeling sorry for himself. Well, are you guys going to leave me now too? That's not the point. He asks this question for the sake of his disciples. They need to respond to this. They need to to confess their faith. Jesus is asking this question not because they need to hear an answer. But because they need to articulate an answer. By God's grace, Peter gives a beautiful response. Verse 68, Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And that really summarizes everything we've said. He is a complete Savior. And because He is a complete Savior, He is an only Savior. And there's nowhere else we can go. Is that your confession this morning? 
Is it mine? Will we look to Him alone? Which is to say, will we receive Him by faith? Because that is the proper response to this good news. Receiving this sovereign Savior by faith. That's the calling that's implied in the Heidelberg Catechism. The very end of answer 30, we read that either one of these two things must be true. Either that Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that they who by a true faith receive this Savior must find all things in Him necessary for their salvation. We are to receive Him by faith. And that's in harmony with what Jesus Himself taught the people when the the masses came back to Jesus Christ the next day. The first thing He taught them was this calling to believe. That's verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on Him whom He has sent. And it's no Noteworthy that that's at the very beginning of this long section that includes that language of us eating and drinking Christ. How do we eat and drink Christ? By believing on Him. And that's the call that comes this morning. Believe. Trust. Receive Him. And do so knowing that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. May God so work that faith in our heart, whether for the first time we receive Him this morning, or whether for the thousandth time we look to Him by faith, trusting in this sovereign Savior as the only one who can deliver us from our sin. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for the good news of the Gospel and for the blessed truth that Jesus Christ is a complete Savior. Work faith in our hearts. Strengthen that faith by means of Thy Word. And cause us ever to look away from ourselves and unto our Savior to find in Him all things necessary for salvation. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.